Today we begin a new series. We're going to be talking about the church. It's really interesting when you start thinking about the church. If I were to do a survey in this room and kind of go around and ask you about your ideas about maybe how the church should function or ideas about the things the church should do or the church shouldn't do or, or uh, just effective things about ministry, we'd have all kinds of different opinions and all kinds of different ideas if we do, one person may say, well, we should be doing more of this. One person would say, we should be doing more of this or maybe less of this. And all those ideas probably come from different areas. Sometimes those ideas about the church and what we think the church should be or the church should do, sometimes they come from how we were raised. We were raised in a certain way, and sometimes we wonder, well, I was raised as a kid. We used to do A, B, or C, and now church today doesn't do that. Sometimes our ideas come from uh, other churches have been part of. When I was a church at one time, we used to do this or we used to do that. Some of those ideas are great ideas. Some may not be effective today. Uh, they may, they're all over the place. Some ideas come from people who like to read books, read blogs, listen to the professionals about how do you do church. It's real interesting. A lot of the professionals are talking about how to do church. They don't even lead a church or pastor a church, but they have a lot of advice and write a lot of books about how to do that and a lot of blogs and, and ideas. But we have all these kind of ideas floating around the church. That's why in Fayette County here, we have about 300 different churches. If you drove down a road here, one church does music this way, another church does music this way. One church does uh, children's ministry this way, another church does children's ministry this way. One church does their service this way, another church does it that way. You go, there's all kinds of flavors as you drive around the city of Lexington of how people live out what we understand as church. I think if you're in Christ, you probably understand that the church is much larger than what we're doing here this Sunday morning. The church is God's people. We're just part of his church, and so we're just one fellowship or one congregation, but we tend to call them churches. And so today we're going to dive into this idea about the church. Today we begin this series in the book of 1 Timothy, and the book is written to this young pastor, Timothy, and it's a guidebook to how the church is supposed to act and behave in order to be a healthy, gospel-centered church. Now, Timothy was discovering rather quickly that being a pastor was tough work, extremely tough work, and some of the issues and things that he was dealing with. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy to guide him, to tell him, here's what the church is supposed to be doing, here's what a healthy church looks like. And being a pastor back then was extremely tough because of sin and because of many other issues that still run rampant today. And so today, leading and guiding a church, it's not an easy task. Not an easy task by no means. The Center for Church Leadership conducted an extensive survey among church leaders in 2016, looking at the challenges that ministers and churches are facing. Here's just a few of their findings. The top three challenges that ministers face regarding ministry, 92% said engaging and mobilizing members to serve. How do we get the congregation to take on their kingdom role to be part of the servants in God's kingdom? 83% said evangelism is a big challenge. How do I get the people within the church, and when I say church now, I'm referring to local congregation, how do we get them to take it serious that it's their job to reach out and share faith with other people who don't know Jesus. And 82% said communication to the community. And when you talk about community, not the community or local congregation, but how do we communicate to the community that you live in so they get an understanding of who you are and what you're trying to do as a church. The top three challenges that churches face as a whole, so as the body operating together, 80% said change. 
80% of people said change within the church is one of the hardest things. How do we make effective changes in our ever-changing culture, in our ever-changing world, when most people don't like change, but we know if we don't change some of our methods, then the church falls behind. The church doesn't affect its culture. And so change as a church, how do you deal with that? 79% said ministry evaluation and planning. How do we look at what we're doing? Is it working? Is it not working? Are we being effective? And again, I think that ties into change. And then 79% strategic planning. What's our roadmap? Where are we going? So these are challenges that are facing some of the churches today. And the center then works to help ministers and ministries and churches because there's a large dropout rate of people who go into ministry. Many of them quit. Only one in ten one in ten who enter ministry full-time seven years later will still be in ministry. That's a 90% dropout rate. 90% of the people who say, I'm going to go into ministry, I'm going to be a children's minister, a worship minister, I'm going to be a preacher, I mean, I'm going to go to the mission field. 90% of them who want to dedicate their life to that in seven years say, I'm done. Because ministry... It's tough work. It was tough work back when Timothy was pastoring, and it's tough work now. Author Warren Wiersbe wrote an article called Changing Lives Through Preaching and Worship. Listen to what he wrote. He said, often I receive letters and telephone calls from anxious chairmen of pulpit committees, all of whom want me to suggest a pastor for their churches. What kind of pastor do you need right now, I always ask. Oh, a man who is about 40 years old, a good preacher, a love for people. He says, if I don't interrupt them, usually they go on to describe a combination of Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Mother Teresa, and the Lone Ranger. <clears throat> I served on a public committee one time, and the time we got done making a list, I thought we were describing Jesus because we wanted someone who was just as perfect as Jesus. Timothy, a young pastor, mid-40s, pastoring a young church in Ephesus, full of young Christians. Titus was another running mate, so to speak, was a young pastor in the island of Crete. And the Apostle Paul write these pastoral epistles. We know them as letters that are part of the Bible, First and Second Timothy and Titus, to help these young pastors and their young churches. How do you do this effectively? How do you do this in a way that changes lives? And so Paul writes First Timothy and Titus shortly after his release from his first Roman imprisonment. It was around A.D. 62. And then he writes his second Timothy, his last letter from prison during his second Roman imprisonment around AD 66 or 67. It was just shortly before his death. And so these letters are written more towards the end of Paul's life, which is interesting because as an older man, he's writing them to the younger men saying, here's how God wants you to do his church. And the interesting thing is this, is God has not left us without guidelines for the church. He's not left us without a roadmap. He's not left us without blueprints. He has given us some blueprints. You say, why are we engaging in this kind of sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy? It's the fall. Here's what's important. We don't want to get off of the blueprint, do we? You ever had someone make a, a meal for you and they leave out an ingredient? Sometimes whatever that may be, that bed that, that bread was baked or that cake that was made, it doesn't taste as well if you leave ingredients out. If you don't follow the instructions, Centerpoint has changed dramatically. The face of Centerpoint in the last 12 to 18 months, up to two years, where probably most in this church have probably come to this church within the last two years. 
Now, there are several who have been around here for some time, but when we have newer folks, and then sometimes people have been around here for a while, we can kind of forget what does God want us to do, and we can just kind of put it on cruise control, and we just kind of keep on going. But it's good to stop and get back to the basics. It's good to evaluate. It's good to say, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And stop and look at, are we doing what God wants us to do? I'm always reminded of John Wooden, the old basketball coach that coached UCLA Bruins to 10 championships in a row. He used to start off every single season with the young men and take out a pair of socks and he would show them, here's how you put your socks on. Now most of us say, why would you do that with 18 to 22-year-old kids? They know how to put their socks on, right? No, they'd get them on crooked, they wouldn't put them on straight, and they would end up with blisters. So every year he would stop and start his basketball team, showing them, here's how you put your socks on so you don't get blisters. Because you have blisters on your feet, you're not going to be able to play basketball very well. And so they would start with the basics. So it's good as a church to go back to the basics for those who are new around here and say, okay, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to be. For those who have been here around a long time, so we don't forget what we're supposed to be doing. We look at 1 Timothy and see this manual for the local church. There's a key verse, I think, that's going to keep coming back as we go throughout this journey. Chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul said, If I am delayed, so he's writing to Timothy, and he's letting him know, I may not get there as soon as I want to. I'm coming your way. If I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. In other words, he's listen. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, what I'm telling you, they're not cultural things. These are concrete things. When he makes the comparison of the, the pillar and the foundation of truth, he's like, if I don't get to you, I want, to, want you to know this is what you should be doing with God's people in his church. And what he's telling them is what works here is going to work for all ages because this is God's blueprint, God's plan. We have a letter to a young pastor in a congregation. They're just getting started, full of new Christian. The church leaders then have a responsibility of protecting and providing for these new believers here to help them grow, help them know how to ground themselves in Jesus Christ. And so I want us today begin by looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. I encourage you to use your growth guide. Your growth guide was in the bulletin as you came in today. They're also on a table. Now that we're back in our season of groups, most groups started last week, some are starting this week. You take this growth guide, you take a few notes, you open up on the inside of it, and it's a Bible study guide. Bible study guide so you can look at the text that we're dealing with week in and week out. You wrestle with this a little bit in your own time, and then you take this guide with you to your growth group so that you can dive in further as we walk through the book of First Timothy over the next several Weeks. Let's begin with verse chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I see there a very special greeting from the Apostle Paul. This letter comes with that apostolic authority because the Apostle Paul is the one that has written this. And if you didn't know, the Apostle Paul has written over half of the New Testament as he penned down what the Holy Spirit told him to put down on a piece of paper. And verse 1, he says, God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And so Paul begins by just drawing in and saying, listen, I'm coming to you from God, our past, what God has done for us, and I'm coming to 
to you in the name of Jesus, our future and our Savior, and what Jesus, how Jesus has saved us. And he's letting them know that there is no hope apart from Jesus. And so right from the get-go, Paul is raising the authority that he's coming from. He's not coming in the name of Paul. He's not saying, I'm the Apostle Paul and I'm bringing you my words. He's saying, I'm bringing words from God Almighty and Jesus, our Savior. And today, I bring these to you in this form of a letter. And then it's very simply to Timothy. Now you ask, where did Paul and Timothy's relationship, well, how did they meet? They met in Lystra, or Lystra, some people would say. And you see that in the book of Acts. Timothy was really Paul's spiritual son in the faith. What that meant is when Timothy was young, somewhere on Paul's missionary journeys, he met him, Lystra. They begin a relationship, and Paul then guides Timothy and helps Timothy know who Jesus is. He comes to the Lord. And so you see Paul's heart of leading people to Christ, but then discipling them and helping them grow. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Matthew 28. Jesus told us, what do we do? We go to all the world, preach, teach, baptize, make disciples. And so Paul is living that out. Preach, teach, leads him to faith. And then he makes a disciple out of him. And he starts off when he's young. That's why it's so important, church, that we never forget about our ministry to young people. And then we stay focused on reaching young people. You know, 90% of people come to faith before the age of 18. Now, I understand some wander from that and some kind of go different directions in their 20s and sometimes even their 30s a little bit longer, but most people make a decision for faith. That's why it's so important what we just saw first service. Congratulations. How exciting that is to see Haley and Kennedy give their faith, to Je- give their faith in Jesus and make it proclamation and be baptized. How exciting that is. So important that young people make those kind of decisions and we walk with them because, Paul, we see that commitment to reaching Young people. So this letter comes from a, a person who's a soul winner, who's concerned about his son in faith, a person who he's mentoring, he's discipling. Now notice this greeting, though. Three key words. As we go throughout First Timothy, I'm going to spend some time on some certain words. I think it's important for us to understand that we see in our text. He says grace. It all begins with grace. Ephesians 2.8 said, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is a gift of God. This is not something of yourself. This is nothing that works can do. And he says, listen, he draws in that grace. He draws in, listen, you have that grace gift. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by grace of God, I am what I am. And again, he draws in, and Paul, now think about Paul's life. If you go back, who was he before he was Paul? He was Saul. And what did he do when he was Saul? He persecuted Christians. He took their lives, right? He persecuted Christians. And so then he becomes Paul as an apostle. And he says, it's by God's grace that I am what I am, that I'm saved. And so he comes in that grace. And then he says, mercy. See, God doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's mercy. When God doesn't give us what we do deserve. See, grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to have our penalty for sin. That's what we deserve. But by His grace and His mercy, we don't receive that. We sure could do a better job, I think, of extending grace and mercy to others. And as we see this in this letter, we're going to be challenged and encouraged to extend grace and mercy. And then he says, peace. This is what we have because of God. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Paul's pointing to the fact, listen, when you have grace, when you receive his mercy, 
There's peace that's beyond our understanding. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. These writings of Paul, the Philippian writing, the Roman writing, we see him continually coming back this idea of grace, of mercy, of peace. See, the Christian life begins that way. It begins with us accepting his grace. It begins with us receiving his mercy. When we accept his grace and receive his mercy, that's when peace enters into us. And a Christian life is supposed to live that way. The Hebrew writer kind of summed it up. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come in grace, come in mercy, so we have peace. See, if we got a real glimpse of this grace and mercy, peace of God, then we'd be really overwhelmed. I think that's why Paul starts a letter here. Paul starts a letter with, I come to you in grace, come to you in mercy, come to you in peace, because that's the approach. Because he's going to have to deal with some tough stuff in this letter, but he's coming in that kind of heart, that mindset. So we see that, that spiritual greeting. Secondly, we see a spiritual guarding. Look at verse 3. As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they what they so confidently affirm. As we go through this, you're going to see that some are getting distracted. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 1, the word some is used as referred to people who are being distracted by false teaching. They're going down, back down the wayward path of sin. They're going down ways that are not God-honoring. And as, as just as with young children, have to watch the diet, you have to guard their food, what has to happen in the church? We have to watch what we're listening to, what we're being guided by, what we're being taught by, who, who we're being taught by. See, because false teachers love to get a hold of new converts and new believers. Usually false teachers don't go after mature believers. Because false teachers know, well, mature believers are grounded in their faith, and I'm not going to mess with them. But false teachers see someone who comes to faith and goes, oh, i got to go and, and get, their, get them distracted. False teachers don't want people to come to Christ or to walk in Christ. So they go after people who are young in their faith. They go after people who don't, don't know their Bible well. That might be a challenge for some in this room. How well do you know your Bible? Are you studying it? Are you reading it? Are you engaging it? Because when you don't know your Bible, that's when false teaching creeps in. And they love to get into your home and get you away from the church and, and get you away from authority and away from accountability and trying to guide you and pull you away. So we can't allow ourselves or any member of God's family to sit under a Bible teaching or individual who is not under the authority of, of God's local church. We've got to be careful. We've got to watch out. What are we reading? What are we listening to? What books are we reading? What preachers are we listening to? What teaching are we listening to? What uh, television show are we listening to? What kind of talk shows are we listening to? All this kind of advice, pop psychology that's allowed into our minds. What are we listening to? Because false teachers want to pull you away from the truth of the gospel. Verse 4, they make up stories, it says. 
makes up stories around obscure Bible facts or things like genealogies. They come up with unique teachings that no one else has ever heard of or thought of. And they say, well, here's the idea. Or false teachers always get people off onto secondary things. It's never about soul winning. It's never about tithing or submitting to the leadership of local church or being obedient to God's word. False teachers sometimes infiltrate right in the church because they get you distracted by all these issues that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God or with the gospel. And so we need to be aware of that, that we don't let that kind of stuff creep into God's church. It also says in verse 4, they promote controversies rather than God's work. They always seem to have a word of criticism against the organized church or, or to help justify the fact that they are out on their own. Let, let me warn you, church, criticism and a critical spirit is a major warning that you're allowing false teaching to operate in your heart and mind. And we've got to guard against it. We live in a society right now where we are told to evaluate everything. We had to buy a, a new washer and dryer this week. What do I do? I go online. I look at everybody's opinion about the different washers and dryers. And we live in this world where we want to spout our opinion. We say, well, that's just my opinion. But it can become a very critical spirit. And we've got to watch out for it in the church. Let me just warn you, in your growth groups that begin this week, sometimes that can be a place of critical spirit. That can become a place of complaining. Don't allow that because that's when false teaching creeps in. That's when difficulties creep in. Mature believers, we want the meat of the word. Mature believers want to move away from critical spirit and say, give me God's word. I want to know what God's word says. But false teachers say, oh, let me just pick a little thing. It's kind of like picking the last meat off the bone. Let me just have some of the leftovers, so to speak. It's the importance, kind of like the importance of certain days or foods or practices or traditions. False teachers say, I got to protect all that kind of stuff. And Paul will warn us against that to make sure we're staying focused on God's Word. Let me just tell you, the Lord's warning to us, church, is so strong. So strong. And this, it was going on in the time of first, when 1 first Timothy was written back in A.D. 60s. It was going on at that time where false teachers group it in, and nothing has changed today. The only thing that has changed today is it can come at us so much faster because of technology. So much faster for someone to pull you away from your faith to embrace stuff that is not of God. And the Bible warns us to stay away from it. So don't let false teachers get you off into side roads and side issues that don't matter at all. So we see a spiritual greeting and a spiritual guarding. And then you see a supernatural guiding. Look at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. You can just tell from those three verses Paul's going to be hitting on some pretty heavy stuff. Giving out some really strong warnings to the young Christians. But see, he addresses in verse 8 and 9, first of all, the law. Let me talk about the role of the law. See, false teachers love to take a believer who's been saved by grace and put them back under the law. You've been saved by grace, but you're not doing this and this and this and this and this is all the law. The law is good, but it's only good if it's used the right way. It's only good when it's used the right way. In verse 9, the law is not intended to show someone how to live the Christian life. The law isn't for the righteous is what it says. The law shows me that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. 
And we get that mixed up sometimes in the church. We get that mixed up and we start saying, well, you're doing A, B, C, D, and E, and F, and G, and all this bad stuff. And we try to point out and say, you're, you're, you're disobeying God's rules, God's commands, God's laws. Listen, the law is for those who are not in Christ to realize I'm not in Christ and then I need Jesus' blood. I need His grace. I need His mercy. And when I discover that, I'll then have His peace. So the law isn't for the righteous. The law shows you that I'm a sinner. And then He goes through and He starts to list all kinds of things of the law. He talks about lawbreakers, those who live without authority. He talks about the rebels, those who refuse to submit to any kind of authority. That's people who say, forget you, police officers, forget you, the laws of the land. He talks about the ungodly, those who have no reverence for God. They have no respect of God. Sinful, those who are totally devoted to sin. The unholy, those who like to live like the world. The irreligious, those who blasphemy and mock God in the church. Murderers, those who murder people. And he even says, those who murder their parents and you read that you think well, that's crazy have times changed probably see that in the news maybe in the next week month two months or someone shot their mom or their dad it's happening continually and then he says adulterers those who are sexually immoral outside the bonds of marriage in some translation use the word perverts he says those who are homosexual he says this should not be now I know a lot of you in the church, you say, well, what's the preacher going to say about homosexuality? Let me just tell you, it's in this list of all this other stuff that all align the law, and all of it goes to show us that we need the Lord, we need a Savior. Some of us sit back and go, oh, those homosexuals, that's so horrible, that's so terrible. But we don't stop and look at my ungodliness or my sinfulness or my lying or my cheating or my stealing. Or he says slave traders and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and people who traffic. All these things about the law all point to us to go, thank you for God's grace and mercy and I need it. So what we want to do many times, we tell people to change, 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 change. Paul's saying... Help people discover the grace of Jesus Christ. Help people discover the mercy of Jesus Christ. Don't use the law to beat somebody up and say, well, you're doing this and you're doing that and you're doing this. No, introduce them to Jesus and then let Jesus do the heart change. See, here's the result of the law. The result of the law is that it pushes us towards sound doctrine. God guides believers of the law so that we'll recognize we need a Savior. And then we come to that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and we say, I want to live in Jesus. The law can't change hearts. Only the Lord can change hearts. And you can stand and point a finger at people and say, well, you're doing this wrong or you're doing that wrong or this is in your life or that's in your life. And they don't care about all that. And quite honestly, when we start telling people all their wrongs, what do we do? Pride comes in. And our chest puff up. We're like, you're not going to tell me how to live life. Our job, church, is introduce people to Jesus, to the God of grace, to the Lord Savior who will bring peace. And then let the Lord work on their, little, their challenges or their issues or their heart so the Lord will change them. And Paul's trying to remind the church, don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked with being all the law keepers because you and I can't keep the law. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood and your mercy. Warren Wearsby writes and says, Our churches need preachers like Jeremiah and John the Baptist, servants of God who courageously stand for truth and who are intimidated by the crowd. We need the kind of preachers John Wesley described when he said, Give me 100 preachers 
who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God on earth. Warren Wearsby is just saying, basically, give me a whole bunch of people who are willing to stand for a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, healthy-centered church. Give me a whole bunch of people like that. So over the next few months, we're going to take the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to take our time walking through this. This is going to be our sermons up until our Christmas season. We're going to walk through the book of 1 Timothy. It's God's manual for the local church and discover His will for our lives and for, for the church. And we're going to find out what He wants us to do. And we're going to be holding up the mirror of the Word of God all the way through as we study on Sunday mornings, as we get into our growth groups. And we're going to be looking at that mirror of the Word of God and we're going to say, God, how is Centerpoint doing? How are we doing as a church? And we're going to try to look at it and say, all right, God, you tell us to do that. And the Scripture tells us what? If we know the Word, we study the Word, we're supposed to be what? We're supposed to be doers of the Word. We're not supposed to be just hearers or listeners of it. And so we're going to look at God's Word and say, are we doing that? If we are, praise God, we're going to keep doing it. If we're not, maybe it's time to make a little bit of adjustment, a little bit of change in the plan so that we make sure our plans are aligned with His plans. We don't look at what's popular culture. We don't look at the most cutting-edge thing that's coming. We don't look at the most person's advice. We don't look at the opinions of man. We look at one opinion, and it's God's opinion, and we'll do that. Decision Magazine, there's an article written by Glenn Martin. He says, Throughout the quiet streets of a fishing village that lay at the mouth of a turbulent river, a cry rang out, Boy overboard! Quickly a crowd gathered, and anxious eyes looked out over the rushing water to the figure of a drowning boy. A rope was brought, and the strongest swimmer in the village volunteered to rescue the lad, tying one end of the rope around his waist. He threw the other end of the crowd and plunged into the river. Anxiously, the crowd watched him breast the tide with strong, sure strokes. A cheer went up when he reached the boy and grasped him safely in his powerful arms. Pulling the rope! He shouted over the swirling waters. The villagers looked around from one to another. Who's holding the rope, they asked. Not one person in the crowd was holding the rope. In the excitement of watching the rescue, the crowd had let the rope slip into the water. Powerless to help, they watched as two people drowned because no one had made it his business to hold the rope. Church, the rope is the Word of God. There's a lot of people in this world that are out here drowning in sin. They're drowning in hopelessness. They're drowning because they don't know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But we must hold the rope. Whose job is it to hold the rope? It's my job. It's your job. It's our leader's job. It's our job together to make sure we're holding on to the rope of the gospel. But we've got to know what the rope is. So we're going on this journey together. And I want to encourage you, church, let's hold the rope. Bow your head with me.